Welcome back to the Bent Not Broken podcast. My name is Paul Shirley. I'm joined, as ever, by... Jen Say. <laughs> that was your speaking spell voice. Yeah. Did you have a speaking spell ever in school? Do you remember what that was? No. It was a handheld device where it would, the thing would would say to you a word and then you had to spell it ah. uh, on a machine. Sounds familiar. <laughs> as I'm yeah. talking about it, it makes it sound like I'm talking about like the original computer, but it felt like that. It felt very advanced, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. Couple that with those uh, those little games where you could they, they simulated a video game in that there was a little race car that would move one, two, three spots. I didn't have that. Yeah. I played Simon. Mm. That's all, but that too, very similar. That right? was cool. Uh-huh. That was fun. I feel like that's our our generational divide. Is you're like a a deep '80s kid. Oh yeah. And I'm a little bit of a late '80s kid. And keep in mind, we're both old compared to. Yeah, most most the, people at this point. The but yeah. '90s kids that I hear about online. Yeah, and I have recollections of the '70s, which you probably don't have. Right, I don't quite have that. Yeah, I mean, I can remember I was born the same year that Elvis Presley died, so I can. That's a. And I remember when Elvis Presley died. Okay, that's the difference. Yeah, yeah, there you go. That's the exact I, difference. I literally remember it. Yeah. So you were six or seven, probably. What year was it again? 77. Yeah, it was seven or eight. Okay. And I remember it. I was with my aunt mm. in Washington, D.C. visiting. And she kept saying he died on the toilet. I don't yeah. even know if that's true, but that's even, what everybody I, said. Have you seen the, the Boz Lerman Elvis movie? I have not. Okay. If you get a chance, it's Good. it's fun and festive. I'm behind um, on my media. I'm sure. But it uh, it does speak to just narrative control. Mm. Right. Like how I grew up under that kind of image of like, well, he was gross and old and disgusting. And you're like, well, yeah, but there was some other circumstances involved. I'll watch it. So we talk on this podcast about resilience framed by our sports backgrounds. How's your, how does your resilience feel currently? Do you feel weighted down do you feel you've you've been doing book release stuff there's yeah, a lot a lot happening yeah. my book came out maybe i guess two weeks ago at this point i am up and down with my resilience but as one is mm-hmm. you know and i have days where i'm really energized and excited about the stuff i get to do and i have days where it feels really hard and i'm like what did i do i blew up my whole life and I'm tired and sad. <laughs> I believe it. So we have a couple of things to talk about, but I want to, that's an, an interesting phenomenon that I had thought about in passing with you, but am interested to know how you do feel about that. Because let's say four years ago, you were thinking about how to make Levi's the biggest brand in the world, for lack of a better phrase. Now you're thinking about life as something of a commentator member of the intelligentsia how has that been only because like because of the unexpected nature of it yeah i gosh i have a lot of thoughts on this i'll try to be short and sweet though i was bored at work Mm. you know and i i think back now and i got a new job in the course of all my covid antics you know i was doing a good enough job that i got promoted to brand president and i thought well this will make it interesting but i was still bored so if i you know in my heart of hearts i know like if i had another 5 to 10 years of that i would want to poke my eyes out with a fork like i know that i was bored of the content of the work. I was just bored. You know, I'd been there 23 years. I figured it out. Mm, Yeah. You know, but I liked the consistency. I certainly liked the consistent paycheck. And so there's a lot of uncertainty now. And that's kind of scary, but it's also really energizing if you can kind of harness the energy from it and not get too overwhelmed by the uncertainty. The part that is hard is less that because I know in my heart that I couldn't have kept doing that another 10 years. It's everything is different. Like my city that I loved for over 30 years, the friends in that city, my colleagues who were also friends, like I don't have any of that. And that is sometimes wearing. Mm, 
Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. I think I'm going through a junior version of that. Um, in that I have, of course, relocated as well. And I, th- I do think now that you're saying that, that one of the things that is missing is the scaffolding that I had in LA. You know, as much as I grew to dislike Los Angeles, I had such a network there. You know, I was there for 10 years, which for me was a very long time in my life because most of the rest of my life I had been going places three weeks, three months, at most a year and a half. And so I think there is in my head, I'm still sometimes wondering like, well, why do I feel so unsettled? And it's the combination of the two. Yeah. I mean, that's a good way to put it. There's no scaffolding. Like I wake up in the morning and I don't have to get dressed and go to work. My day is mine. I mean, right now it's not because I'm doing so much, you know, book stuff, but I'm home. I don't know. My life is unrecognizable, but you can build new scaffolding and I have a great new community. And so on the days I feel a little down and start thinking like, what have I done? (laughs) (laughs) I draw strength from that. I have a great community. A few people here in Denver, you're one, uh, but you know, more broadly across the country, these open schools moms, as we call ourselves, it's just a, a, a great group of people that mm-hmm. have shown up for me and I show up for them and I'm inspired by them and they're winning school board races across the country. And so I can draw strength and energy from that. And I have to just sort of settle into a different kind of life, which is not as rigid, mm-hmm. which is a gift. Yeah, it is a gift as we will look back at our lives, I think, because these are the sorts of things that I think extend your life expectancy. Starting over is what leads to a kind of metamorphosis, which I think energizes all of us. So I here's the other thing that happened to me in the last couple of weeks since I saw you that was energizing. So I went and I spoke at this event mm-hmm. um, about the harms of the prolonged school closures. But there was another guy speaking, Arthur Brooks, who I had not heard of, but he writes books about happiness. He studies happiness. And he gave a long talk that was really inspiring. And he said that the people that are happiest – in the last sort of part of their life, meaning the last third, let's call it, which arguably I'm in, they've made a change somewhere around 47 to 55. And they, they shift because if you keep doing the same thing and just sort, you don't really get better at it at mm. a certain point. You can make more money, but that doesn't make you happier. But the people that sort of pivot to a different thing in that back end of their life that involves some teaching, not literally teaching, but perhaps imparting knowledge, mm-hmm. <laughs> you right. know, which writing is part of, at least for me. Um, maybe no one wants that knowledge, but it was very encouraging. Um, and he had all the research and studies to back it up. He's written books on it. And I was like, see, okay, I'm doing the right thing. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to get through it. And um, I'll get to be happy at the end of my life instead of bored and miserable. Yeah, I mean, it may be an obvious analogy. I'm thinking this as I say the analogy. Um, but it is very much like pruning a tree, right? Like you could let the tree continue to grow as it is and it's shady and nice, but if you want it to really flourish, you need to trim some back occasionally. And I think that just is harder as we age, right? It's also harder in, I was going to say in the society we live in, but I think that's always been hard, right? Even if you looked through history, I'm sure it was difficult to change courses. I think the hard thing is, I mean, my goal was never to make as much money as possible. So it's not really hard to let go of that. I I do think for a lot of people, if they get on that sort of treadmill of corporate life, even if they're not happy anymore doing it, that can be the thing that you keep chasing. Mm -hmm. It's not really that hard for me to let go of that because it was not really a priority for me to begin with. I mean, I do need to figure out how to (laughs) earn a living, but that's not hard. But the consistency, Mm. you know, that is, it's hard. I like, I'm a disciplined person and I instill as much in my day as I can through, you know, exercise and those kinds of things. But I'm trying to enjoy the freedom, I guess. But it's an adjustment, weirdly, to enjoy my freedom. I was thinking too, that we live in a time when our every decision feels very public, which can make this difficult. Like you've had to do this in 
something of a self-induced spotlight because you don't have to be on social media, That's but true. it's still a spotlight nonetheless. And it feels like a spotlight. And I think that that is one aspect, I guess, as I'm thinking about why does it feel maybe more difficult than in the middle ages, you and your family could just run under the cover of darkness to the next town and nobody would know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the irony is I wouldn't be in this situation right. um, in the middle ages because they didn't whatever. make jeans yet. <laughs> yeah. They didn't make jeans. They didn't have schools. They didn't have Twitter to be a big mouth on to get yourself mm-hmm. fired from your job because you talked about the school. So it's a whole right. Well, you, you know, would have it would have been religion. Um, right. So we want to. Uh, it's it's interesting you mention a switch in your job because one of the things that uh, we're going to get into today is the decision of when to quit or not, especially as we often say, uh, framed through this lens of resilience. So I'm going to read something that you kindly sent to me and then, uh, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit. This is from, how do I say his name again? Sorry. Vinay. Vinay Prasad. Doctor. We both like quite a lot. And he's writing about, um, elements of, especially, I guess the term grit, right? Which has been used a lot in the last five to 10 years. Um, when do you stay? When do you go? This is an excerpt from this piece. Yeah, which was on his Substack, right? If I remember correctly. Yep. Yep. No one can say, if you have a question about your marriage, better to divorce. They don't know that to be true. No one can say, if you have a question about your job, better to find a new one. They have no evidence for that. In the absence of this, how do we make decisions? Probably we all do the same. We talk to people we know and trust. We make lists of pros and cons, if not on paper, then in our minds. And we have no idea if our process is optimal or suboptimal. I suspect that for many of us, depending on our mood, we dream of a different counterfactual. When I'm feeling happy and validated, I'm so grateful I switched jobs. When I'm feeling blue and stressed, I imagine things would have been nice had I stayed. So I wonder, based on our backgrounds, what did sports teach us about, what did sports teach you about quitting or staying? So I am a person that I think I think we all have different tendencies. I tend to not quit very much. I've quit three things in my entire life. I quit gymnastics, which arguably I didn't, but at 19, I quit gymnastics. Mm-hmm. I quit, I put in quotes, my first marriage, and I just quit this job in a really public fashion. Um, I could do well to perhaps quit some things sooner. I don't think sports taught me that. I think it was innate in me. And I think my experience in athletics reinforced it as a pretty good strategy. I mean, until it got really bad at the end, because in not quitting, I ended up being quite successful. Mm-hmm. So it sort of reinforced my natural tendency to keep going until I'm bleeding and bloody on the ground. And I loved this piece by Vinay. And I, I'm obsessed with this notion of grit. The book by Angela Duckworth, I think, is mm-hmm. the, is, is why this has kind of come into fashion to talk about. And the, the idea is just that there, it's this sort of quality no one can describe, this grit, but this stick-to-itiveness, essentially. Some people have it and they keep going and they are successful. That can be overdone, but quitting can be overdone too. And so I think what Vinay is really saying is no one can tell you what the right thing for you is. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to decide. It's based on what is your goal? Is that goal still important to you? Does it matter? Is it possible to achieve? Um, will I be unhappy if I walk away from that goal? I mean, there's a million factors, but I just think our own personal tendencies and yours is probably a little more like mine because mm-hmm. I think that that personality type does well in sports, never giving up, even if it really is time. <laughs> right. Um, I'm trying to quit more. Yeah, I, th- I think as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about something I have said a lot lately, which is that people who tend to be really hard on themselves need more self-care and people who tend to be too easy on themselves need less self-care. But oftentimes we start to silo ourselves out to hear more that confirms our beliefs that that are already in existence. So as I'm thinking about what you're saying, I'm thinking about how in writing – I once heard wise counsel around finding five people to read 
some of your work when you're looking for edits and to know going in the sorts of edits that they're going to give you. Like this person's going to say everything I do is great. This person's going to be really hard on me. And these three people are kind of in between. So as we age, finding that Greek chorus, if we, if you will, to uh, give us some uh, sounding board that a, we kind of know going in what they're going to do and B that they're not just doing what we're already doing. Right. Right. They're going to give you actual. Yeah. Because I, you know, I was raised like you to not quit ever. And then a lot of my advisors in my basketball career were really my mom and my brothers because I didn't, because nobody else knew the whole story. And there were situations that I probably should have walked away from, just said like, hey, if you're not going to pay me, I'm not staying or whatever the situation might have been. Um, But like you're saying, I had so much evidence that it was really effective to just gut your way through it, that it was hard. And I've I've wrestled with that a lot with regard to injuries that I had. Like, should I have more stuck up for myself and said like, hey, I can't play this. I'm going to be hurt longer. And on, on one level, yes, but on another level, I'm not sure, you know, because I just kept doing it. Sometimes it worked out in my, in, yeah, to my no, advantage. I have the exact same, this we're in violent agreement. I, I think I spent a lot of my adult life, meaning my thirties and forties thinking I had too much grit. I negated and neglected my own well-being. And it worked. I won and I made the national team and all these things, but it was really bad. It didn't work. It tore me down. Mm -hmm. And so I need to quit things more. And then I repeated the behavior in other situations and didn't kind of quit soon enough. I have a different perspective now in my 50s. And I think it's informed by the fact that we see I don't know. It's informed by something we've talked about, which is this like culture of safetyism where any discomfort is to be avoided. And I, I think that's really dangerous too. And it's making people really soft and weak. <laughs> that sounds really harsh. And I'm turning into like Clint Eastwood, get off my lawn or something. But like I, I'm sort of grateful for the backbone I have. And, you know, do I wish I hadn't gone so far as to train for two and a half years on a broken ankle and have that ankle be completely destroyed now? Yeah, but I'm also really grateful that I don't give up at the first sign of discomfort. I mean, you know, to take it out of sports and my my first marriage, I was married for 12 years and many of them were unhappy. At the end of the day, though, I I tried as long as I knew I needed to to feel okay about the decision. I know a different person would have probably left sooner, but I'm okay with how I did it because I worked really hard at it and I cared about it and I wanted it to work. And it was only when I really, really knew that there was no way Mm -hmm. that it was, that it was time. When I was in college, my freshman year, there was a player on our team who would go on to be drafted really highly. And my coach would get furious at him because he was so talented, but he didn't want to work at it. And he one day started screaming at him in a film session. He's like, you know what your problem is, is that you want to keep some in reserve so that you can look back and say, well, if I had tried harder, I would have made it right. And I've thought a lot about that during my my career because I lived sort of the opposite, which is not to say that my way was right, but I lived with this fear of regret. Like, well, what if I don't put it all out there? I would be sadder about that than to have left myself some rooms to say, well, if I had just tried, I could have made it. So it's, it's an, it's strange because the two brains can almost not talk to each other. Like they can almost not understand how that other person is motivated. Yeah. I, I know people like the guy you described Mm -hmm. and I knew it at the time when I was a kid, like I knew that person is way more talented than me Mm -hmm. and she just isn't going to try as hard because then she always has the excuse. Well, I didn't care and I didn't really work that hard. And you know, it sort of like protects her against the shame of losing because she didn't even try. These are so, that is so foreign to me as a, I just, like I said, we'll leave it all in the field till I'm bloody and bleeding. And if I failed, I failed because I wasn't good enough mm-hmm. and I'll have to live with that. Right. And yeah, to me, that seems like a way that I would rather 
end my life, not that I want to commit suicide. I would rather uh, at the end of my life (laughs) and look back and say, there wasn't a lot of slack in there. You know, I, I, I did my best, but again, I think it's just hard for me to even understand that other person. And therefore it's hard for them to understand. I think that's right. I think that's right. And it's, it is the difference. I think to come back to Vinay's piece, Mm -hmm. the, the grit person and the quit person. Oh, right. Um, did you just coin that now? I like that. The grit person versus the quit person. I did just (laughs) coin it. And I, Look, I think it's a spectrum and it's a continuum. And I think some people probably have the right balance. I know most people lean probably one way or the other. And I, I certainly have friends who I'm like, why quit so much? Like they quit the job the first time it's hard. They quit the relationship the first time it's hard. And I think you miss out on so much when you don't keep going and keep trying. The question is when? And I think that's what Vinay tries to kind of wrestle with in the piece. And it's something I think about a lot. It just, it depends which side, are you a grit or a quit person? Mm -hmm. Like which way do you have to kind of modulate? Modulate. Yeah. Like like you're this, you, your tendency is here. So you probably need to modulate back to this. The problem is I don't think anybody wants to admit if they're a quit person. (laughs) I don't know that anyone thinks they are. Like, do you know anyone that's like, I just quit at the first sign of trouble? Well, I like those people. If you are a quit person and you're self-aware, then you're probably easy to hang out with. (laughs) I wonder if my husband would say that he is. I, I do think that there is... You know, in, in startup parlance, there's the idea of failing fast, right? Yeah. So I think there's value in thinking about how you can get to points where you have to quote quit something, which usually actually means pivot. Yeah. Uh, within your life or within a yeah. creative pursuit. And that in some ways, it could be that the economy we've created, which is pretty uh, creative and, and intellectually based has forced people to get better at quitting maybe because we ha- because jobs just go away right like if it were if we were at a paper mill there it would be like i'm gonna quit working at the paper mill and now go work at some other thing but now it's just like half the jobs that you and i know of didn't exist 20 years ago that's true so you've got to reinvent yourself and you got to figure out new stuff and i know for myself when i was leading a large team the skill i looked for more than any other was not can you do this thing but can you adapt and learn quickly Mm -hmm. because not this job today is not the same as it's going to be even in a year i think if you take it out of the professional realm though one of the things i i think is sad is i think people quit relationships i don't mean just even romantic relationships like Mm -hmm. people quit on their friends and their own children and in romantic too soon Mm -hmm. you know or well you should never quit on your kids i would i would (laughs) would argue yeah um but it's sort of like at the slightest it's this sort of penchant towards self-care and like boundaries and you're gonna kind of cut yourself off from anything that causes you any strife or pain and we just limit our meaningful human connections when we do that. I find it really sad. And I said offhandedly, I wonder what my husband would say, who's almost like a third character now in our little (laughs) conversations. Mm -hmm. He would say, and I agree with this now that I think about it, he only quits the things that don't matter. He'll work harder at the things that matter than anyone on the planet. And Mm. that's first and foremost, I would say our relationship and his relationship with his kids, but things that don't matter, he will walk away from. That's my problem mm. is I don't differentiate and I, I don't walk away from things that I don't even care about that right. much, which is really stupid and a waste of time. But I, that's what I find sort of sad. And I, I'm not talking about divorce rates being high or any of that. I'm just talking, you know, relationships are hard. Mm-hmm. Friendships are hard. Yeah. And I think some of that is that we have facilitated quitting relationships with things as simple as texting, right? It's easier to say no to things if you can just say in a text, no. Whereas I think in a previous time, if I had to say no to you face to face, it'd be harder. And then that breeds some of this connection. But don't you think there's also, I'll preface this by saying I hate Mm self-help as a rule. Like I don't read self-help books. I don't like, 
any of it. I think it's sort of nonsense. That's not to say I don't want to help myself. I don't like the industry of self-help, but it prioritizes, you know, boundaries, like to the degree of selfishness, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. you know, I just, I don't think it's beneficial for our human relationships overall. I think we have to find the, you said self-care, oops, self-care earlier. I think we're overweighting towards boundaries and self-care. I certainly now, um, I, I like what you said about setting up kind of different rubrics for, well, what's important with regard to what I should quit and that relationships and interpersonal connection wouldn't be one of those things. And I think that does come back to personal values, right? Like, well, what, what do you truly value in your life and quit? If it doesn't attach to that particular value, then to quit worrying about it. Maybe. Yeah. And, and you know what? It's not to say when applied to relationships that there are some friendships that don't become toxic and they don't benefit you anymore and they don't value you. It doesn't mean they didn't have meaning at one point in your life either. I think mm-hmm. you have to recognize like this friendship served a purpose now. It was meaningful for that reason, but it's not serving a purpose for either of us or one of us mm-hmm. <laughs> anymore. Um, and I don't quit those either for the most part. So <laughs> I waste a lot of time on things that or I, I'm trying I'm pulling back on that. I'm pruning the tree as you indicated mm-hmm. earlier. Um but I have to work hard at that. I my inclination is not to quit anything ever, people, relationships, and to extend myself in ways on things that I don't really care about mm-hmm. for other people. So I could probably use some boundaries, but I really resent people that cite boundaries and self-care to put nothing into a relationship. For sure. Um, I was thinking as you were talking about that, about when I used to have to make decisions about where I would go play, it would often be, Hey, this team in Poland just called and they want you to come for X dollars. And then you have to do a whole bunch of research very quickly on like, would they pay us? Would this be good for my career? What's it? You know, what are the other options? And I remember being just racked with confusion and uncertainty for a very long time until at some point the decision would just get made, right? Like there was just now enough information or the deadline had arrived and I had to make a call one way or another. And I find that with most relationships, especially or jobs that you're in, it will seem impossible to make the decision up until the very moment that it's no longer impossible. Where it's just like, there's so much evidence that I have to get out of here. Yeah. I cannot deal with it anymore. And so what I was, what I was thinking about is that that's of course true. And sometimes we wish in the midst of that, that we were better at making the decision, but that's impossible until we get to a point of retrospect, right? When we look back, we can say, well, what did I learn about that? So I I guess I'm saying like, we have to also give ourselves grace when we're not sure what to do because that version of you can't yet make up its mind that's right. and that's okay. Another yes. version of you 10 years from now might have made a different decision. All of that is true. What I would like to be better at is because sometimes I know it's not serving me anymore, but I don't cut the cord or quit out of fear or habit or just some other reason that isn't necessarily a good reason. I'm willing to endure too much suffering, perhaps Mm. physical suffering in some instances, like in sport, emotional suffering. Um, And so I would like to be able to have those other factors that matter less, not influence my decision not to quit. If you see what I mean, but you're right. That's not the person I am, but I want to try to consciously become more that person. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And our advice, if, uh, if people are in doubt, I think my advice is generally don't quit. (laughs) Yeah. I think Uh, that's most of the time, most people in America in this year (laughs) probably just need to not quit as a default. I, Well, yeah, don't quit your job right now. That's definitely don't quit your job right now. But I've given people the advice to quit relationships that I can see are damaging. Yeah, well, I think like that's one thing I've always thought is like if you're considering whether or not to break up, you should you need to break up most of the time. 
if it's, I mean, if it's just a boyfriend girlfriend relationship, if you're right, if marriage is yeah. different. Mm-hmm. But some people I see quit marriage. I mean, I have friends that have been married like less than a year. Come mm. on, you didn't even try less right. than a year. It's like the. Uh, Aren't you embarrassed? When I uh, so I've been doing the uh, the cold plunge here at uh, Denver Sports Recovery, and it's always true. I mean, I forget it every time. The first minute's the hardest, and then once you settle in, you're like, oh, I mean, it's still cold, but. I'll be fine. Yeah. I just have to do another four minutes or whatever. And it's, are, is, are you comparing that to marriage? <laughs> well, the, it's that in that first year or sorry, first minute of cold plunge, every part of your body is saying, just get out, just get out, just get out. And I'm sure that's sometimes the case in relationships or jobs. Like just get out, just get out, just get out. And then if you stick it out, good things happen. Yeah. Hey, I came up in the corporate world in a time, I mean, in the first tech boom or second, I don't know, there were so many in San Francisco, but in the, you know, sort of early 2000s, all my friends were fleeing. They were tech hopping. They were going from one company to the next. And I didn't. I stayed put at a non-tech company, Levi's. And I thought, am I making a mistake here? Like mm. they were trading up and making more money and higher position and all of this. And I sort of felt left behind, but ultimately all the places they went, went under and I ended up as the mm. president of the brand. So in that case, my stick to um, served me well. And what you're talking about is the very definition of the word loyalty, right? Yeah. So like in some cases there's, there are all these other characteristics that we have to kind of manage and triage, right? Like, well, am I a loyal person? Like sometimes your someone's one's own self-interest may then betray the group dynamic. And yes, it sucks for three months, but we got to keep this going because of loyalty, which yeah. is also a virtue, right? In some circles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So let's talk about another thing that came into our brains that's um, it's on our minds in the world as we record this. I don't know if it will be um, by the time people listen to this, um, but it was, it's been on people's minds for a few months now. Um, the piece that I sent you was actually from like last summer um, having to do with China and um, styles of government and their resilience, which may seem a bit far afield, but I think there's some applicability. I'm not going to read this whole piece, but the the general thrust is this guy's in a uh, in a train station. He scans his QR code and it switches his uh, his pass to red, which means that you can go nowhere in China. Um, and the reason he was in this place was because he was trying to withdraw about $900,000 from his own bank account at a rural bank. And so this doesn't allow him to do that. So I thought that was interesting, interesting for a billion reasons, but also from the perspective of governance, right? And, and how something in order to be resilient must also be adaptable, right? Like it, it's not enough to be just strong arming. And so I was thinking about how Ant, like there's this term that we mentioned that uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb talks about called anti-fragile. So when something is made stronger through um, exercise, like muscles would be a great example of that um, versus something that's fragile or brittle. And so like it, it in the heart of hearts, if we take the Chinese government at their maybe most uh, benevolent. They're trying to keep people safe from COVID, right? Well, like that's the, the that's original. What, yeah. Authoritarian <laughs> governments always say that right, yeah. <laughs> in a, in a perfectly benevolent, but then it has this knock on effect of, Oh, by the way, that if we decide that we don't want you to take your money out, we can also use that to wreck your life. And that becomes of course, malevolent. And so then thinking about like, well, what makes that style of government? So, non-resilient right and well we'll see but i think generally i'm no history buff but um authoritarian regimes can last for a time mm -hmm. because they suppress any dissent and they say they do it for safety and i think ultimately this will sound corny. I, I think the human spirit prevails and people won't live under those conditions. But I, I will say, so I think that makes it a not very resilient form of government for the long term, to mm -hmm. use our, our language. 
But one of the things that I've found alarming in the last three years is our willingness here, especially young people, to accept what I would call fairly authoritarian policies, no freedom of movement, you know, inability to visit loved ones in the hospital who are sick and dying. Mm -hmm. Children can't go to school. You can't move freely and congregate or you couldn't for quite some time. Tell on your neighbors if you see them doing like these are <laughs> yeah, pretty <laughs> these much are, authoritarian playbook. It's the playbook. <laughs> And people begged for it. They wanted more restrictions. They were mad when the restrictions ended. And I couldn't believe that we were seeing that here in America. And I think fear will do that, though. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, how authoritarian regimes take control. They make the populace afraid and they say, we're going to keep you safe. Mm -hmm. But now you have to live in this highly restricted way. People seem to want it. They seem to be okay with it. They seem to sort of beg for it. And that is what I found. So the mo that was the most alarming thing for me over the last three years. And I think that would lead ultimately, if we accepted it, to an increasingly authoritarian government. And mm -hmm. I don't accept that, which is why I didn't shut my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I was amazed early in, in COVID when I – so our space in LA where we had writer's block um, – the writing space I ran was next to an art gallery and I had become friends with the, the guy who ran the place. In fact, went to some amazing parties at his house after openings that they did. And one day, you know, two months into all this, he said out loud, like, I think, I think we should be doing more of what China's doing. And I was like, do you, I didn't say it because I was like, I don't, I'm not going to win this fight. There's no, there's no real upside to this, but like, Im imagine if it had been two years before this and I had asked him anything about like, uh, former dictatorships or, or authoritarian regimes. There's no way he would have agreed with any of it and would have said, well, it's a real slippery slope. We don't want to jump onto that. So I think it, it was interesting how quickly people's minds changed because of fear. It makes me think of basketball coaches I had who ruled with fear and yeah. with intimidation and how it does, like you're saying, it does work in the short term. It, it often seems successful and people will say, why don't we get more people who are screaming and ranting and raving? Um, but the truth is that if you're on the inside of that, you know this can't last. It can't because you break a person and eventually people mm -hmm. will rise up, an athlete or an entire <laughs> citizenry. It, it's true in raising children too. There are very strict parents and the kids are utterly perfectly behaved at home because they fear the parents and they go out into the world and they wreak havoc. Mm -hmm. I try to give my kids – enough autonomy. I mean, not too much. My daughter's only six, but enough so that she's treated like a sentient, breathing, living human being with choices and learning to make choices. She's kind of wild at home. She's very good in the world. Mm. Mm -hmm. If you see what I'm saying, I think parents that rule with an iron fist, they, they see very orderly behavior at home, but it's provoked by fear, fear mm. of the parents. Mm -hmm. And those children are often very wild in the world and, you know, um, getting into fights and, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna push back somehow, mm -hmm. you know? So I don't know. I think you need to have sort of freedom within a framework. <laughs> that's what we used to say in the business world, freedom mm. within a fair framework to make decisions. But I think that's true. From a governance perspective, I think it's true in families. Mm -hmm. um, we're all individuals. We need to feel that we have some autonomy and that our internal lives are respected and our choices matter. Yeah. And so, so you're taking it to the familial level. I think you could also even take it to the individual level in that if we are too authoritarian with ourselves, right, that that well, has thanks. its own – it actually kind of ties back to what we were talking about before, right? If we say, well, this is how I do things. This is how I've always done things that that doesn't allow for a lot of adaptability. Yeah, I think that's right. I hadn't thought of it that way, but if we're too rigid within ourselves, mm -hmm. this is how it has to be. I'm only eating this much food and I'm working out this long and I'm doing, yeah, it, you can't live that way. It's mm -hmm. not sustainable. And therefore 
it's not a resilient sort of methodology, I think, for how to lead your life. I was, I think it was, um, I think it was a piece on, on common sense, uh, Barry Weiss, Barry Weiss, Barry, Barry Weiss <laughs> about that. I haven't, that, that is about why we all decide the same thing. Oh yeah. Now, I read that yesterday. Right? So a thought along those lines would be, are we sort of choosing our own authoritarianism because of social media and the way that it might lock us into like, this is how you have to be like, that's an, an interesting aspect. I think of the internet is, it uh, purports to give us all of these choices, but it ends up kind of flattening our choices in a weird way. Yeah. I also, not to go back to harping on self-help, but I think, I don't know. I don't really like frameworks. I don't like to be overly kind of boxed in, you mm-hmm. know, and I, one of the things I find, self-help, you're supposed to make these lists and pros and cons and you're supposed to do self-care X number of hours a day. I don't want to do any today. I want to work like crazy today and then maybe tomorrow I'll – Yeah, I, I'm not a big – Self-help is very much about balance in mm. everything. I'm not a huge fan of balance. Like I have periods in my life where I work like a dog because I love what I'm doing and that's fine. And then I have other periods where I'm just spending it with my family. And I think you get balance over the course of your life. But mm-hmm. there's something overly rigid to me about balance. That sounds weird and, yeah. you know, counterintuitive, but I don't. I don't like diets. I don't, I don't want lists about my life. I want to move in a direction mm-hmm. and have freedom to do that. That's the freedom within a framework that I like. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I think it can be all the self help can be sort of authoritarian and rigid. Yeah. I, I do think that some of that, I mean, as somebody who practices a lot of um, oh, frameworks, no. am I criticizing your whole lifestyle choice? I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Well, what I was going to say is that. One thing I see is that if you are in the depths of chaos, that there is a way out through rigidity, right? In that, that is like, fair. so that a lot of times what I'm seeing in the world is people are so blasted by distractions or, you know, negative self talk or whatever the thing is that we have to come up with some sort of a, it goes back to that scaffolding idea, right? Like let's create some systems in your life to work you out of that. But then, you know, I had this conversation with somebody the other day actually about, you know, well, what do, what do you do now, Paul? And I'm like, well, I can at this point, because I'm, I've been doing this kind of thing for so long, I could get up any time of the day and just lock in and start working but that took a lot of work to get to that point. Right. So it, I think it's a, it's kind of bimodal. Like if you, if your life is wrecked, you will need That's some true. of this stuff. And then you can get to a point where you can use freedom within a framework to your advantage. I think that's right. I just like, let me, let me take it to parent. I keep going back to the family, but for one second, there's a mode of parenting, which has not been the mode I've practiced that when your children are really little, you have this like incredibly rigid schedule. Mm. This is nap time. They nap from one to four every day and it has to be in the crib and it has to be with this blanket, with this bottle right before no bottle. Sorry. You only nurse. Um, (laughs) And they can only have these foods at these times. And it's like, Ah, I couldn't do it. It upends the whole family. What if you're, you have two other kids and you're out doing something and you're not going to make the whole family go home. So this one child can take the nap the way he has to take it Mm -hmm. deal. Take it in the stroller. I think it teaches the child children the wrong lesson that Mm -hmm. they can control their environment and they can control all the circumstances and that the world has to stop for whatever their needs are. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of, parenting books that recommend this kind of rigidity and schedule. I'm not saying it's not true. The kid probably will sleep better. Mm -hmm. So what? Right. So yeah. At what cost? At what cost to the other four members of the family? Mm -hmm. Um, And again, what are you teaching them? Like I'm not willing to kind of stop my entire family's existence. So one child can have the proper nap on one day. Yeah. And I think that probably is exacerbated by, everyone's desire to raise a perfect child now for sure which <laughs> right. is a whole other show <laughs> yeah so I, I think that some of that is is uh, some a, a feature of our times 
right? Whereas if you were carting your kid across the prairie because you're following the buffalo herd, you're like, shut up. We got to keep walking. <laughs> right. And I just, I find, look, I've had four kids in a, 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 a long stretch of time. So I became a different person over the course of the, you know, 20 years in between all my, that's 15, between all my children. I became, I think, a better parent when I let go of all that rigidity. Mm. And I think it's, I, I personally believe, and I'm sure many parenting experts would argue with me, I personally believe it's better for the child. Mm-hmm. I think when they grow up in this hyper-controlled environment, they can't handle anything that upsets their environment, and that's right. not life. Which, to tie it back to China, you could make the case that these authoritarian regimes also end up stifling any kind of innovation. I actually saw this up close. I don't know if you would know this. I briefly played for a Chinese basketball team while in Los Angeles. It was a team that had gotten kicked out of China because they wouldn't give their best player to the the Red Army team in China. So the owner said, well, I'll just go to the US and play in one of the minor leagues. So I and another American got were hired to basically be like sort of the guides um, and it was fascinating watching these Chinese players try to play against Americans because American basketball players are just inherently uh, prone to ad-libbing and making shit up as they go, right? And the Chinese players couldn't handle that. Like it was like if it's if it doesn't fit in this box of – what I could possibly do from this moment. Like if you think about catching a basketball at, let's say the elbow, which for those who don't know is where the free throw line meets the lane line. And there at that point, there are approximately infinite number of options, right? You could there's just, who knows? There's, there's so much chaos on the court that you cannot predict what might happen, but they had been trained according to a very regimented and rote method, which meant, I'd only do this, this, or this. And so it was, it was so like, it was so easy to play against them in practice because they just didn't have any idea that you might do something that wasn't in the playbook. And I think that's, again, what we always come back to in these debates about governmental styles is, well, yes, it can work in the short term, but there's so many effects, right? And this would be one of them, right? Like the U S is so good at, at, building innovation and encouraging that, which I love about. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because China arguably is ahead of the U S and in a lot of technology, they also Mm -hmm. kind of steal a lot, but they (laughs) they are beyond in, Mm -hmm. in, in many areas. I, I just think, I mean, it's very interesting watching what's happening right now in China. They have not seen this kind of unrest and protests like this. Mm hmm since in uh, in a very long time decades right it's interesting to kind of contemplate covid started there we believe in in wuhan and the government has pursued this zero covid strategy and the people are finally rising up and they're saying enough they were sealed in their homes they couldn't get food they were sometimes delivered food sometimes not like it, it could it lead to the actual end of this governing style there i don't i mean i don't know we'll watch i not if they can help it right right um but it's it's a it's a fascinating time and very interesting to observe and i think it's human rights violation on top of human rights violation you know it's not you know, the fire um mm. the people were welded in the building is what prompted this but there's been egregious human rights violations um as far as the uyghurs you know the mm-hmm. ethnic um Chinese Muslims in China, I mean, I think it's all just coming to a head. And I think you can't treat people that inhumanely and have them not eventually rise up. Yeah. And and the, the cautionary tale, I think, as you said earlier, is people's appetite for a version of that here was, in fact, quite scary to me and to you. And I think like I, I always grew up like my both my parents worked for the government in two different situations, one state, one county. So I think they believed in the power of government. It 
just has to be kept in its place though, man. <laughs> like for lack of a more articulate way to say it, like yeah. it just, we, you, you got to make sure that uh, the people have a way of pulling the lever to make sure that the government can't just do whatever it wants. Yeah. After the last three years, I want much less government. <laughs> My default is less, not more, which was not necessarily how I felt three years ago. Mm. I, I had a very similar experience to you and the guy that you described. I mean, I can count five people that said to me, if we were more like China, this would be so much better. They fixed the roads, they fixed the potholes, they've built the buildings fast and they, you know, killed COVID. Mm -hmm. And I was like, really? Yeah, this is your choice. <laughs> That's how you want it? Mm-hmm. So it's and of course all these people are, you know, denying having ever said this now as you see what happened because right. the only way a policy these policies play out of because you know now people say things like well we never really had a strict lockdown anyway well the only way to have a strict lockdown like china is to enforce it with actual force mm -hmm. and people wanted that and they say well there's something in between no no because people will resist and the only way that you get them to stop resisting is through use of force right so that is what they were asking for yeah i mean they that's forget. and that's so i i love Something I read probably in like The Economist a long time ago was that gridlock in America is actually a really great thing because it keeps anything from changing too quickly. And I, and I remember thinking like, oh, you know, I had, I'd always been like, why can't they get anything done? But like you're saying, having two oppositional viewpoints means that you usually end up somewhere in the middle. Balance. Which is Yeah, I mean, it's why I find the executive uh, emergency powers, you know, mm. which Gavin Newsom in California, my favorite governor to pick on, still retains. He still retains emergency powers, which means you don't have any of that friction. You don't have any of that democracy. Mm -hmm. You know, you just make laws because you want to. It's easier yeah. in the short term I don't think it's good for democracy and I don't think it's good for the citizenry. And it, 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 it's not, it's undemocratic. I think anyway. the, uh, yeah, the, the summary is in government as in your brain, resilience and rigidity are not the same thing. <laughs> yeah. We need some built in flex, built in flex and respect for our sort of humanness mm -hmm. in both. I think that's going to do it for us. Cool. You're, uh, you have a kid's birthday to go to. Yeah, my daughter, I'm hoping she's resilient. She turned <laughs> six today. I can tell you she's rebellious. Mm, okay. You're hoping she's resilient. Oh, as it, with her life. I thought you just meant Just in general, I tonight. hope she develops resilience. She's a pretty tough kid, but I'll tell you she's very rebellious and feisty, so I'm bracing myself for the teenage years Ooh, to yeah. come. Well, maybe by then you'll just be tired. <laughs> I definitely will be, but I try to encourage it. Like, I think we need more rebel, more rebellious spirits in the world. I, yeah. You almost need a little of the people like willing to say, fuck no, and cut off their own nose despite their face. Just I'm not doing it because you told me to. Like, I want a little more of that in the world. Yeah, we could. Hopefully she can channel it in a productive way. At mm -hmm. six, that's hard. Right. We could, I, I think, use a lot more of that in our uh, culture today. Yeah, like so I'm, tr I'm trying to encourage it, even though it's really, it would be much easier to be more authoritarian with her. Mm -hmm. It'd be easier for me. Right, right. But you're going to take a uh, non-CCP attitude. I'm trying. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm, I'm all for freedom. Uh, good. That's what I like to hear about the Say Household. Thanks for listening, yeah. everybody. We'll uh, Soon, we'll have a way for you to ask us questions. We're not there yet. This is still test mode. <laughs>